0: Sometimes you see the world around and we we know the long-term promise that Christ will come and we will go to be with him. We know that. We take that as fundamental truth. We take that gospel to in the phrase. But how often do we find ourselves sitting there thinking, Lord, what what is happening in the world around us? We see the apparent lack of uh, international leadership, should we say, in the West. Now I don't particularly care about what side of the political fence you sit on this evening. It doesn't matter what side of the political fence you sit on this evening, there is, a, there is an apparent lack of leadership within the countries that we live in and the countries that we share uh, this part of our world with. We see the nature by which man and particularly parts of our community are trying to reshape and rechange the things that God ordained. What is man? what is woman, what is marriage, what is family, what we can and cannot say. You see, and yet these things are all causes for concern, I think. I feel that's a a fair assumption of what we see. There are those of us that see this as the fact that, well, we can see that the Lord is coming based upon the fact that people are being ignorant of his word. People are doing exactly what the book of Daniel said, that they are throwing truth to the ground. And yet there are times then that when we come to the word of God, we come to something that ultimately encourages us. And that's what I want to do this evening. Tonight is not a historical meandering as we have been when I've done stuff in the past. This is not looking at some great long leader, long committed to the annuals of biblical history. This is something tonight that I want us to take hold of. This is something tonight that I want us to grasp hold of. This is something tonight that I want to take you to take and for us to take as we go into the week ahead. Now, look, I don't know what all of you are facing as we go into that week. Some of you have a week that you're looking forward to this week. Others have a week that you think, Lord, if I can take it till next Sunday, then all will be well in the world. That's the way and, you know, that's the, the broad spectrum that we all are in uh, as we sit here tonight. So where do we take encouragement? We take encouragement, friends, in what 1 John chapter 5 has to say to us this evening, and now it's time to read God's word. So we're going to read 1 John chapter 5. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter. There's only 20 or so verses. Uh, it will be on screen, but I'll give you a few moments just to uh, to find it in your own your own Bibles, as I would encourage you uh, to do that. So the words on screen will be from the ESV. If uh, uh, using another version, then please uh, don't get confused. Stick to what you have uh, in front of you. But th- this is the version that uh, that I will preach from. This evening, so one John chapter five then begins with these words. It begins with. And there was me thinking that this was going to do what I wanted it to do tonight. I tested this perfectly earlier on. Thanks, Alicia. She is my biggest encourager. She said, "I saw you do it, Daddy." So that's it. You've heard it from the horse's mouth. So it must be. It must be correct. So. 1 John chapter 5, then the first eight verses on screen, and then we'll roll through uh, as we do. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world: our faith. Who is it then that overcomes, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is why he, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify: the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he born concerning his son. Whoever, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God believe God has made him a liar, because not believed in the testimony that God in, 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 sorry, I've lost my place, because not believed in the testimony that God has given him concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us. You see, that God gave us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have had the requests we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And he closes his letter, this entire book, with this, frankly, incredible phrase. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So we're going to have a look then at this letter that John wrote. The whole book, the whole book, whenever you read through this letter of John, I want you to remember it as this title. It is John's love letter. That's what it's there for. John is a disciple of that talks about love in such a significant and powerful way in his letter that he wants it to bring back to it as part of the basic fundamental part of our faith. He spent four chapters talking about love. We have the incredible phrase that God is love. This is not some distant character of God. This is God's very fundamental nature. We remind ourselves that as being part of God's, being involved in being part of God's love is being free from his judgment. And being part of it is having that understanding that while God is love, that love is not just something that can be dismissed or put to one side. It is God's fundamental love. And so John brings that to us. He spends the vast majority of his book looking and talking about love. But now then, in chapter 5, he comes to four more practical matters. The first, which is on screen, subject of truth. So I opened up with this quite uh, very broad brush of some of the things that cause us concern. Some of the things that we get a little bit confused about, a little bit unsure about in our world around us. You see, but these are the four things that mark us out as a true believer. And I want to to intend to deal with these four practical matters as we work our way through this uh, this chapter. I'm not going to deal with them chronologically. I'm going to look at the four of them and pick them out at various parts. John writes the conclusion of this letter. So then we talk about this subject of truth. The truth starts in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You see, that truth runs through the first five verses. Faith that does not need to love is meaningless. The Apostle Paul saw that this was a fundamental truth. You see, because it wasn't just in 1 John that we read about this subject of truth paul himself picks it up in ephesus when he says for this reason for this reason so ever since i heard about your faith in the lord jesus and your love for god's people i have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers to the colossians he said this we always thank god the father of our lord jesus christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ, and the love you have for all of God's people. You see, it's not just Paul or John, but Peter also picks this, run this theme up. He says this, though now you have not seen him, you love him. I even know you do not now see him, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. He see, because that is the fundamental part of what John is saying. The fundamental part of his letter thus far, that is picked up by these further disciples is this issue of, of love but it is also the issue of truth and so as we pick these two themes up we see that truth and love run together in our opening verses the truth is this everyone who believes that jesus christ has been born of god and then comes the love and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. The two things are symbiotic. In the opening verses, in the opening verse, truth and love. So, friends, if we are talking about then, let's the subject of truth now to move into and to look at in more detail. If these New Testament giants are repeating the same thing over and over again, then something tells me that it must be important. If one of the fundamental truths about having faith in God and Christ is is this. We stand in absolute truth. A truth that is fixed. This is not one day the immovable force, going to resist the the irresistible object. This is the absolute fundamental of where we are, where we stand in God. So dare I suggest to you now, as we think about those things that I, that I mentioned at the beginning, that now as Christians, under the pressure that we face, we need to know what the truth is, and perhaps even more importantly, we need to know we are standing in that truth, that everyone who believes that Jesus, Christ, uh, Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That is absolute fundamental truth. You see, because we live in a world where the truth can be whatever you want it to be. There has been a phrase that has appeared over recent years and months that is personal truth. It is personal truth that has led us into a position where you can say, do identify as whatever you like, and nobody can question it or query it because it's, absolute, it's personal truth to you. And if it's personal truth to you, then it cannot be wrong. Friends, I say this with the greatest love for those sorts of people, but that is absolute nonsense. There is such thing as absolute truth. And so if there is such thing as absolute truth, then truth cannot be personal to that level. And certainly the world does have a belief that the truth is subjective that we can somehow make fit our own purposes. Friends, John opens this word up, this letter to us with this, that everyone who believes that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. That is absolute truth. If you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then you are not born of God. And so for there is no room for personal truth when it comes to these issues. Because the issues are, do you believe in God or not? We could go around the houses of what you might believe as a personal uh, understanding. We could go around and believe of what you might believe this may mean or that may mean. But when you strip it all away, we are left with that very question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has been born of God. Or rather, that Jesus is the Christ and has been born of God. That is absolute truth. And that is why John makes the point of standing in the truth of his own letter. And yet what is interesting is if you do any form of digging into apologetics or any form of digging into the defence of the Christian faith, or any form of digging into anything remotely scientific to do with creation, evolution, the existence of God, whatever it might be, there will be people that will say, God is absolute truth, as we've just talked about. And then there will be people that will say, well, no, 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 there's no such thing as absolute truth. And then they expect you to believe that there is such thing as absolute truth as what? Absolute truth. And so how have we got to a point where we sit here as people who are believers in God, knowing out there in the world around us, the people that we meet, the people that we work with, the people that we see walking around us, will deny, flatly deny, that God exists. I've noticed that we've... Have you noticed how the, the, the movement in Christian apologetics has shifted? We had It wasn't that long ago that the, the main arguments were, were we created or did we evolve? Have you noticed how that has kind of slid into the background? It's still there, it's still important. But one of the biggest things in Christian apologetics right now is this does God exist or not? Does God exist or not? How many people have you had an interaction with, you talk about God, and they say, we don't exist? We haven't even got to arguing, discussing what, whether or how we got here. We haven't moved past the fact that God actually exists. Why? Because I come back to where I started, we have a group of people who say there is no such thing as absolute truth and accept you to believe it as absolute truth. And this is why John begins his letter, or the end of his letter. He's talking about love. He's spoken about all that. Now he says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ, is the Christ, has been born of God. Friends, John closes his letter with absolute truth. You see, God himself is absolute truth. And the opening verses of John's, uh, final part of his letter, outline the fundamentals of how we, as someone who believes in the truth, demonstrates love, and then comes our behaviour. See, that's not the end of our resulting behaviour, along with the demonstration of love. John outlines that uh, in the next little section. We come to these two incredible topics of faith and obedience. You see, these are further demonstrators of a relationship with God. Verses two and three. Look, read this. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And friends, there are those of you that are going into this week with questions to answer. God. How do I obey you in this situation? Friends, take this very verse to heart. His commandments are not burdensome. They take some faith to agree with and they take some faith to, to, in, to bring to fruition, but they are not burdensome because we are being faithful and obedient to God. God. Why? Because we know the truth. We have seen a demonstration of love. We have seen our belief and now we demonstrate the appropriate behavior by obeying what God has said in His word. You see, the challenge for those of us as Christians here this evening is this Are we people who are characterized by our obedience? When we have a very clear instruction in the way that we should go, do we obey? or disobey. There's no, uh, well, God, if you could just put it back a week, or two weeks, or three weeks, or four weeks, I'll, I'll need to go and do X, Y, Z, and then I'll obey you. That's not how it works. I was in, um, I was in a, a, one of our sort of senior manager team meetings the other day, and we were talking about some, some issue. And our, our regional manager is quite the, um, he's a bit of the autocrat at times, I think is probably the, the professional way to describe it. He's a bit of the autocrat. And so so there was an issue that was raised about the way that our control center deals with with problems, things that happen, follow up, on call, that sort of thing, you know, usual line manager stuff, arm around the shoulder, oh, there, there, you'll be all right. You good? Right now, get on with it. That sort of stuff. And then what happened was my regional manager said to one of his managers, "You, you, 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 I need you to go and investigate this for me. And then one of this, the manager that he said that to said, no, 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 I'm going to push that back to you, for you to go and to deal with. To which the sort of, the smirk appeared on this person's face while he was, while he was you know, talking to the other manager that he was in the room with. And then the microphone came on, because we were on Teams, and he said, this isn't how it works. I give you stuff to do, not the other way round. And see, that's how it is with God. If God asks us to do something and we are very clear and very understanding of what God is asking us to do, or we get a sense that God is asking us to do something but we're not entirely sure what it is, we have to obey what God is saying. We don't get to turn round and say, Well, I'm going to push that back to you, God, for you to investigate. That's not how it works. There comes a point where we need to be marked. By our own obedience. See, that's a personal challenge for all of us, and it's also a personal challenge for me. As I was preparing this message, it's a question that made me stop and think. I remember hearing Peter Glasgow say from this very platform that he was preparing something to preach at this very church, and he stopped and he wept because he asked himself the question: "Do I really believe in what I'm saying?" And whatever that reason was, they must have caused something of doubt. And friends, that's the, that's the privilege of preaching, that when you come and stand here and you prepare a message, you jolly well know that you better be able to answer the question that you're asking people. So here I am, challenging people on whether they obey God. The question comes back to me. Do I practice while I preach? It's an incredible challenge. This This... Characterization of being faithful and obedience as a demonstration of our behavior is massive. You see, and as we come to the end of these opening verses, John then reminds us of victory. You see, friends, so when we pick up the newspaper and we see yet more sales pitch of doom and gloom from whatever news outlet we use. Or we see something in the world that we think, how far have we come from God's word? Or we see something that just makes us sit up and take notes and say, how could we even got to this point? How far from God have we got as a world? And then we come back to passages like this, where we read in verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Friends, that is faith in Christ. You see, Jesus said in John's own gospel that he has overcome the world. And we can take comfort in that. No matter what the world throws at us, no matter how many giants we face in our lives, Jesus himself has overcome the world. He tells us that we will face tribulation, but we will overcome. The faith that overcomes this trouble that the world throws at us is belief in the Son of God. So let's move on then to verses 6, 12. John has told us that he will overcome the world, that we will overcome the world, rather. He has told us the truth by which we can live. John himself writes his gospel for one specific purpose, that we might Belief. He writes his account of Jesus' life to encourage the readers to believe in Christ. These things are written, so says John's Gospel, that we might believe, and in believing, have life in His name. So what we have here in this next six verses is this continuation of that theme. He's explained how we can overcome the world, and now he gives us the evidence of why we can overcome. The world. He gives us the why and the evidence and the pointing, and the pointing, pointing <laughs> to say that we can believe and he gives us the evidence that we may have life in his name. He gives us the evidence that we can have life in his name. You see, John lines in verses 6 and 7 three key areas that go to some way explaining why Jesus is the Son of God. Now, sometimes in the way that you approach God's words, you approach God's words and you will come across a preposition. Now, preposition is a very fancy word of, of coming up with the first little bit in the sentence. And what we realize is, to help us understand this next little piece, If we take the word by in verse 6, so verse 6 starts with, This is he who came by water and blood. To help us understand that, if we take that word by and we change the preposition and in it we put the word by means or through, it helps us understand that next little section. Okay, so I'm not changing scripture. So don't panic, you know, don't throw things at me that this is some form of heresy, because it isn't. I'm just changing, I'm playing with the English language rather than playing with the word of God. So this is he who came through or by means of blood and water, Jesus Christ. Not by means or through the water only, but by means or through the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies, because the spirit is truth. Do you see that one little preposition change makes that whole verse come alive and it helps us to understand now? Rich, I must confess something to you when you were opening this evening. When you began to pick up on that little theme of water and blood in 1 John 5 when you read it and you started to expand it, I have never had a chair steal my thunder before. And the little thought ran through my mind that that experience might be the first time of happening to me this evening. But thankfully, you stopped where you did. Or otherwise, we'd be swapping places for the next five minutes. So we need to understand and we need to have a look at this idea of what it means to come by water and blood. So John says Jesus came by means, but rather by by means or through the water and the blood. There are the means by which Jesus came publicly and he publicly completed his mission of salvation, and this is how. Water. Well, that came from baptism, as Rich alluded to. You see, the significance of Christ's baptism was this, that it was the public beginning of his ministry. Mark 1, verses 9 to 11, outlines this event. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and was baptized by John and the George. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So we had the beginning of water, which is his very beginning of his public ministry. And then we come to the blood. The purpose of his coming was explained at his baptism. And it was fulfilled and completed at the cross. You see, because we have water and we have blood. And David Jackman, author of John's letters, had this to say. There he is. He had this to say. The same Son of God became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it is faith in him alone and completed work that brings eternal life. For love for God and for his children and the victory of the world. Verse 7 then adds this third area. We get the water and the blood, and now we get the Spirit. So, how then does the Spirit fit together? How does the Spirit play in this, uh, this uh, piece of how Jesus came into his beginning of his ministry and how do it ending? At the cross. Well, the spirit is the piece that joins the two together, because it's the Spirit's role to testify to the truth. It's the Spirit's role to testify to the truth as it is in Christ. It was John himself, and in gospel, in his gospel, that noted Christ's words. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who precedes you from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And John raises these three areas as a testimony of God concerning his son. And so that's what it means when we look at this verse 6. That is he who came, not by, but through water and blood. Jesus Christ, not through the water only, but through the water and the blood. And then the spirit is the truth. That is how we get to unpack chapter, verse 6. You see, what we have this is it is God's way of showing us who Jesus is. And that is why he closes this section in verse 12 with whoever has life. Rather, whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. You see, that's why he writes a summation of these six verses together. That's why he pulls these these, uh, thoughts together by stating the fact the what? absolute truth that whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so, friends, in the five minutes that I have together, we're not necessarily going to run down through all those uh, verses there because some quite major topics in there that I simply have no time to run through. But I accept to take this. In verse 13... I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Friends, this is about confidence. This whole piece that John has written, this is about confidence. He is saying this. There are times when we will need a bit of a Christian injection for one of a better word. We might have been Christians for years or for five minutes, but there will be times in our lives when we will go through times that we don't. There will go through times in our lives where the world around us will impose upon us so much that our faith will be shaken, that we will stop reading God's word, that we will stop praying, that we will stop coming to church that we will stop doing the things that we did when we were close to God. Friends, that is a fact. And yet what John gives us is this, that he has written everything, these promises that we will overcome the world, these promises of who, who the Son of God is, and he writes them that we know that we who believe in the name of the Son of God have eternal life. And verse 14 says this, And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, and that's important, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests if we ask of him. Friends, there are times when the Christian walk will be incredibly difficult. I say that in a room of people who... The vast majority of you have been Christians probably for longer than I've been alive. And yet, friends, it is important to remind ourselves and to remind each other there are things in our world that cause our faith to be shaken. When we see the mess that our world leaders are in, when we see the mess that we have got ourselves into with the likes of political correctness and everything else. And friends, don't listen to me as I'm some sort of right-wing rhetoric. That isn't what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the fact that all these things have come up in such a way because we have turned our backs on the word of God. If we turn our backs on the word of God, then look at the mess that we will end up in very, very quickly. And yet John writes these things that we keep ourselves in such a way We keep ourselves in such a way that we stay close to Christ. Because it is Him, in Him, that we find our confidence. That is why we were left the bread and wine. It wasn't because Jesus wanted us to argue about what it looked like or where it was or what it took place or whether we do it as part of one service or whether it's a service on his own. That wasn't what it's for. It's for one purpose. To do it in remembrance of him. Because it brings us back to the very creation of Christ. Because it brings us back to the very thing that gives us confidence in God himself. It brings us back to absolute truth. That Christ was born. He lived. And he died. And he was raised again from the dead. That is what these things are for. Friends, when you are having a wobble... When your faith is not sure, when you find yourself sitting there thinking, God, are you really there? Come back to the cross of Jesus. God will show you that he is there. He will show you that he is real. You look at that image. You think of what his son went for you, through. You on the cross. And Friends, there you will find your confidence. Friends, there you will find the thing that you can cling on to when the rest of the world is falling apart. That when the next politician, their next bright idea comes to nothing, that we've spent millions of pounds trying to fix. And we have no idea what the next issue is that's going to be round our corner. It's the cross of Christ, the absolute truth of it, that brings us confidence. And yet John closes with a warning. And so shall we. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You see, by the end of his letter, John is an old man who was helped in every who has to be helped in every facet of his life. He had to be helped to the temple. He had to be helped at home. He was a man who was one of the last few people that saw Jesus alive, who saw what Jesus did. He saw Everything that Christ stood for. He knew that, his, that Christ was his redeemer. And yet he has seen Jesus himself. He has shared first-hand experience with the world. I was looking for a way to close tonight. And David Guzik provided it for me. And he says this. We can only have a real relationship with a God who is really there. Idolatry, whether obvious, such as praying to a statue. Or subtle. Living for your career or someone other than God will always choke out a real relationship with God and damage our relationship with our brothers and sisters. Friends, this is a letter of love. It is a letter of love for God. It is a letter of love for each other. It shows us the truth that we can believe in. It shows us the behavior that we should exhibit as believers in God. And friends, it leaves us with confidence in the thing that matters most so that when we now stand and sing our final song together, we can know there is a Redeemer. We can know that he is Jesus, God's own son, Messiah. And we know that he is the Holy One. Father, we thank you that we've looked at your word this evening. We thank you that you have given us very clear instructions to believe in truth. To love you and to love each other. And that, Father, when we get these things right, our behavior will be such that we hold you in the highest esteem. That when we get to that point where life becomes hard and our confidence in God wanes and faints, Lord, we recognize and realize that even then, even then, your son said to a room of people who will very shortly abandon him, do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you that we've been able to spend time together tonight around your word. We've been time to spend time together tonight remembering your son's death on the cross, remembering the blood that he shed. And so, Father, now as we sing our closing song together, recognize that he is our redeemer. Help us then to have confidence in him as we into this week. And in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, friends, our final song then there is... I redeem.